got it twice for you guys, just in case you didn't catch it the first time. Well, good morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to be with each of you this morning. Um, I'll just say on a personal level, that was really a sweet season of worship. Uh, just God, God moved. It was just a, encountering his presence through the faithfulness and the, the talent of the worship team. It was a deep joy for me. So I, I feel ministered to, uh, I feel, feel primed and ready to go. Uh, I, I say that as a warning, because uh, I might get a little bit excited, uh, and you're just going to have to get used to it, because that, that is sometimes my tendency. So in the process of what we've been walking through, we've been going through a series called 40, and what we've been really looking at is trying to engage and encounter the places where God brings his followers through times of testing. So 40 in the Bible is a, is a number for testing, but but testing is unique based on the individual. And why is that? Because with tactical, surgical precision, the Lord knows exactly the areas that he's addressing in their heart and the very things he's drawing them to. Amen? It's good. It's, it's a good like we, have a, we have a Savior of a God who knows and, and is surgical. He's not guessing about the very things and elements that he's, he's drawing out of us and cutting away from us. And so... When we went through the story of Jonah, one of the things that was exposed is you had this, this contrast between these, these corrupt, violent Ninevites who were just some of the worst of the worst in all of humanity at the time. And you had this Jonah who was a follower of God, who was called by God to preach for 40 days in Nineveh, but he didn't want to go. And he didn't want to go because he knew that God was gracious and that God was compassionate. And so he wanted to run because he didn't want the Ninevites to experience the very transforming grace that God had given him. And so he runs. Surprisingly, you can't run from God. And so God catches him, right, in this fish. And the, the, the Bible uses the term vomits him on the, uh, on the beach. And, and he preaches. And, and exactly what he thought would happen happened. And these people get saved. They, they come, they're rescued by God. And they come to this understanding of the grace that God has for them and Jonah's ticked he's angry that God would do such a thing and he said I would rather die those 40 days were not just about the transformation of what God can do in the most violent amongst our culture but it was exposing even the heart of the very prophet that would be sharing the message he didn't understand the character of God. His motives and his heart was misplaced. That His thoughts about the character of God were so internalized that it was just about him receiving from God and not being able to understand how God can dispense that same grace to others. He's a pretty selfish guy when it really comes down to it. And so that trial, that testing was an element of growing in his understanding of who God really was and how gracious and merciful and compassionate the God of the universe is. Then we jumped into Noah, right? Not the Russell Crowe Noah, but the, the Noah of the Bible. And in the process of that, we began to understand a story that we've probably encountered numerous times where there's this flood because of just this incredible corruption. Genesis tells us that there's this place where they can't even think good thoughts, right? Even their intentions are evil. Things were, were not just bad, they were bad, bad. Like darkness was was just a part of their norm. And they were doing life, and all that they were expecting was more darkness. And so God continues to move in, and he preserves 
Noah and his family. And, and the rain comes for 40 days and, and just carries through on the promise that he made to Noah that he's going to flood the earth, but preserve for himself a remnant, a, a people through Noah. So that time of testing was a bit different, right? It wasn't exposing misplaced trust or an un, a lack of understanding of the God's character. It was allowing or growing in Noah a reality that God is a God who keeps his promises. And so as the unfolding story of Noah occurs, there's, there's this growing level of trust. And then you get the rainbow at the end of God's promise saying, I'll never do this again. And then a couple chapters later, what happens? <laughs> we didn't get into it, but it's... Tower of Babel time, right? So God moves in a great way. He uses Noah and his family in an incredible way. And they're like, okay, God is awesome. We can trust his promises. And now what? Well, let's be God ourselves. Right? It's just, you, you get these things where men and humans left to our own devices. Man, we just, we train wreck things. By nature and by choice, there's just this constant rhythm of thinking, oh, that was great. I'm so grateful that God moved. Now, let me do my own thing. <laughs> and there's just that resistance between the authority of God and our own desire for self-reliance. And so we're going to move into a different story of 40 this morning in probably one of your favorite books of the Bible. We're jumping into the book of Numbers, right? You've probably spent your whole year in devotion in this book, reading the census over and over again, tying all the heritage and genealogies together. I know how important this issue actually it's kind of funny when you look at the hebrew uh title for this book it's, it's actually not numbers the title if we translate as best we can is in the wilderness now that is a bit more of an attractive title right numbers is like oh my gosh what are we going to do be counting people all the time no it's really a story of the majestic mighty work of god on behalf of his people and really the results and the outcomes as to why they wander for not 40 days, but for 40 years. It's interesting, as I was looking at this, I think, I think sometimes country music nails it. Now, not every time, right? They always say if you play country music backwards, you get your wife back, your horse back, and your dog back, and your wife back, and your house back, and your truck back. But, but what, 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 there, there's, there's one verse... One, um, one guy, his name's John Colleen, and he wrote a, he wrote a, a song called Rose-Colored Glasses. And I just want to read the first stanza and the chorus for you, because I think it sets the foundation and the premise for how we're going to understand the beginning. We're going to go through kind of like 10 or 11 chapters this morning, but, but somewhat quickly. So Numbers chapter 11 is what will be if you want to flip your Bibles there. But here's what John Colleen says in his song, Rose-Colored Glasses. I don't know why I keep on believing that you need me when you've proved so many times that it ain't true. And I can't find one good reason for staying. Maybe by leaving would be the best for you. But these rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through show only the beauty because they hide the truth. These rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through show the beauty but hide the truth. Enter in Numbers chapter 11. So let me set the scene for you just briefly. So the people of Israel had made their way through the Red Sea. God had preserved them and protected them and, and freed them really from the bondage and yoke of slavery. So hundreds of years, the people of God had been subjected to 
incredible slavery. Slave labor, long hours, terrible time, abuse and beatings. I mean, this was not a place that you wanted to be. And, and they cried out to God to, to ask him to move, to, 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 to free them from these things. And God answered his prayer, raised up Moses. All of these plagues happened. The Red Sea, he parts the waters. They walk through and they're on the other side. And they meet at Mount Sinai. And they have this real sort of communion, if you will, with God. They're just in this deep and abiding relationship with God. They sense his presence. They feel his joy. They know his power. They've seen it. They're experiencing it. I mean, this is the mountaintop of mountaintops. The people of God are energized by the power of God because they know and have experienced his presence. And so now the journey begins. What in theory, if you're a good navigator, would take two weeks, took them 40 years, right? Going, going from Mount Sinai to the promised land, legitimately about a two-week journey, 40 years later, a generation lost. Why? What happened? Here they stand, Numbers chapter 11, and they begin to walk away from Mount Sinai and begin the journey of seeing and finding and fulfilling the promises of God that he had promised to them. That they will be inhabitants of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This was God's plan and he was going to carry it out. As they walked from Mount Sinai, how long did it take before things went south? Three days. <laughs> Three days. Right? You can think that in some ways you can muster up some desire and some, oh yeah, God's great. I can remember all of these awesome times of God parting the Red Sea and meeting me and we've just attended the relationship. And then some levels of discomfort happen. Some trials and hardships become a part of their journey. And look as, if, if you will, look with me as they begin to describe their experience and what really draws them. And I think this is going to be really critical. This is the rose-colored glasses that I'm talking about. Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, oh, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Okay, so this is where we get into this tactical, surgical precision of God. So after about three days along their journey, the rose-colored glasses get put on. It's the optics of appetite, if you will, as I would deem it. And here's what they say. Well, we remember back when, and yes, there was beatings, and yes, there were incredibly long work hours, and there was very little hope, and there was just this constant darkness and oppression that we experienced. Oh, but the cucumbers. I mean, we had cucumbers and melons and garlic. It was so much better than this. See, what, what ends up happening is we kind of pile in or, or dive into the human heart and the human condition is that, that really what gets exposed is the optics of appetites. 
There are longings for comfort that are so consuming that it blinds them to the very truth of what they've been freed from. That they only see what they thought was good back then and miss the constant, perpetual provision of God right now. The if-onlys blind them to the just-waits. Here's what I think he's moving us towards. Is that the very condition and the very heart that exists within the nation of Israel and the people exists in our own hearts. Numbers chapter 10 gives us a bit of an indication of God's movement. And, and here's what they pray for. In verse, it's not up on the screen, but I just want to remind us. In verse 35, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten, ten thousand thousands of Israel. Here's what they prayed for. Lord, remove all the enemies and obstacles from your path as you carry out your perfect provision. Three days later, they're like, God, you are terrible at taking care of your people. Remember the cucumbers? All you're giving us is daily manna, and I'm tired of eating the same thing over and over again. Here's one thing that I want to rest on us as we begin to grow in our human condition and our understanding of their own human hearts. They thought God's rescue meant comfort. They thought that at the end of the day, if God was going to rescue them from the slavery of Egypt, he was going to make their life easy. Sound familiar? This is where it gets really serious, right? Because I think the question that faces us in this text, as I kind of put my own little take on it, is the question that I need to ask each of us this morning and that the Spirit needs to ask me. What are your cucumbers? Well, what is it in your own life, in my own life, as you look back at your past, that draws you back to a lifestyle of being captivated and paralyzed by slavery, but it seemed easier and more familiar than the uncertain promise of God in the future? What are your cucumbers? I mean, what is it that is just such attached to you in such a way, or to me in such a way, that draws us away from the perfect provision of God? The if-onlys. If I only had this, then it wouldn't be so hard right now. The if-onlys blind us to the just-waits. Because what God is reminding us of is that He's the one that fulfills His promises. He's the one that's carrying through His perfect provision in all things. He's the one that's worthy to be trusted. He's the one that rescues. He's the one that frees. And so there's this constant rhythm of those of us who are following Christ to remind ourselves on a regular basis. And I want to remind you here today that there's a just wait. There's mores that God is doing that you and I cannot see yet. But when we put on rose-colored glasses or the optics of our appetites, what we blind ourselves true is to the very truth that God has communicated. What lays before us in Numbers 11 is the reality that our hearts are prone to complain. We tend to be dissatisfied with the perfect provision of God because it's ultimately not what we want. <laughs> but can I tell you something this morning in all of our own hearts? What you want is not always the very thing you need. What are your cucumbers? What are those places where you find yourself wanting more from God than God is giving you at this time. 
You see, we put ourselves on that throne. We, we serve ourselves as the basis for our reality of what we think God's provision is. So here's what we do, right? Here's what I do. If I feel like God is close and I feel like he's working, then I can trust. And so I'm driven by this engine in my heart that's this, this appetite of getting my needs met. When in reality, if we thumb through the pages of Scripture, even on a very superficial level, we would come to the recognition that God is the meter of all of our needs. You need nothing, possess nothing, desire nothing that is not fully met in the perfect work of Christ. And yet, we would return to slavery because it had cucumbers. Then we would experience the freedom and liberty God has given us to fully sell out our lives for him. It's that penetrating surgical tactical precision of what the gospel calls us to. So in Numbers chapter 10, he said, Lord, here's what we're going to pray. We're going to pray the enemies. Just move out of the way. And the startling reality of Numbers 11 is that the greatest enemy to experiencing the fullness of God lives and grows inside of us. <laughs> the enemies were with them on the journey. It wasn't necessarily things that they encountered. It was self-inflicted realities that they were struggling with knowing and experiencing the perfect provision of God. Manna wasn't enough, even though it was provided daily by God in miraculous and incredible ways. Why was it not enough? Because they wanted more, because their appetites were seen through their own desires. The optics of appetite, the rose-colored glasses. Previous pain seems easier than present suffering. It's familiar. It's what we know. It's where we're comfortable. The very provision of God is rejected as insufficient and incomplete. That's just the start. What are your, what are my cucumbers? What am I drawn to in terms of desires and longings that I would say, if I only had this, then I could trust? What if the cross was communicating to us that you have that very thing in Christ and that all of those other things are just desires and appetites that can draw you away from the perfect provision of God? Let's move on a little bit because there's seven huge complaints that take place and they tend to be progressive. So there's this complaint that they have of God, <laughs> you know, I, I get what you're doing here. Thanks for your presence. Appreciate the bread. Uh, but I could use some garlic, a couple of melons, some sauce, and some meat. Like, I, this is great, but it's just not enough. Numbers chapter 12. Now, things begin to grow more difficult. So hardship tends to surface our own heart attitudes, which is partly why there's levels of suffering and test and trial in our lives, because what it does is expose the very areas that we are unwilling to look at. Numbers chapter 12 now, it becomes sort of familial. Miriam and then Aaron begin to oppose Moses, and they begin to get a little bit frustrated with how he's doing things. It's always in the midst of suffering and trial to criticize people around you than deal with what's going on in your own heart. Is it not always someone to blame, right? And it's typical, right? Blame those people who are in charge. It's their fault. If they were better leaders, this wouldn't be so difficult. And so we don't have to address the areas in our heart because we can blame other people for it. Eh, thankfully, God doesn't let us off the hook. 
Numbers chapter 12, verse, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So now things are difficult, and I just say that to say, like, it gets personal pretty quick. They don't hold anything back. They begin to target his family. And they're like, well, the reason why these are so difficult is because you married someone from the outside and God isn't blessing us because of your bad decisions. Man, what an easy blame game that is for us to play. When we meet trial and hardship and suffering and difficulty, what ends up happening is we say, well, if the people around me were better and doing the right things, this wouldn't be so difficult. This is a hard issue for God every single time. The hearts of the people are off. Something isn't in alignment. And we can't excuse the suffering that they're going through just because of bad leadership. Numbers chapter 11 had been a great place where Moses was burdened. I invite you to, if you're in leadership in any way, it's one of those places where there's just a level of, of comfort in that text. Moses is at his wit's end because of the volume of criticism that he faces. He is burnt. God raises up 70 leaders to come alongside him and walk along the journey with him and, and begin to help him grow in his understanding that he can't do everything. Numbers chapter 12 tells us that there are people that are pretty angry with him. And so as he moves on to verse 14, all this complaint continues. Chapter 14, I'm sorry. The people now rebel. So Miriam, Aaron, argumentative against Moses, criticizing his leadership. The complaints continue to grow. If they're unchecked, they continue to make themselves more and more ingrained in the rhythm of the people of God. Here's what he says in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then all the congregation, not said amen, they raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel... All the thousands of thousands of people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt and said to one another, Let us choose another leader to go back to Egypt. Now, this is a pretty startling, not only accusation, but solution to the problem. So we already know that they were captured by slavery. They were beaten for hundreds of years. They were left to do forced labor camps and, and build these huge things for another nation. And yet they were drawn back to those things. If I'm going to die, I'd rather die in Egypt than here. And it's all self-motivated. It's the optics of appetite. They cannot see clearly the work of God and what he's doing because they're approaching God from unmet needs. Do we do that? Like regularly. <laughs> There's this sense in which I come to God and even in the level of my own worship and my own prayer requests and my own desires is, Lord, I want this from you. It's not, Lord, I want you. And that is a huge difference. That the sufficiency of God in intimate relationships with his followers 
are about the work of exposing the enemies that exist and grow and live inside of us that need to be cut out. And the most gracious, merciful thing that the all-powerful, omnipotent God can do is cut away everything that doesn't lead us to more of Him. But we nourish those things like they are our greatest companion. And how do we know that we're doing it? We complain. Complaint becomes a roommate. It moves into our house when things happen that we don't like and begins to set up residence. It unpacks its clothes. It does a load of laundry and and roots through the fridge. And in the process of that, we're saying, well, you don't belong here, but complaints, those who complain, complain itself isn't easily evicted. What needs to happen or what God grows us in for those of us, even myself, in situations that grow in our complaints against God and what's happening, what's the antidote? How do we become vaccinated against complaint? Trust. You see, that's where the Lord is leading his people. Is not just to a promised land, but to the God of the promised land. Correct? Right? It's not just that somehow in some way these people are saying, okay, I want a land flowing with milk and honey. I get it, and I'm good. You've done your job, God. I'm out. We are all set. Thanks. I'm good from here. That was never God's plan. It was to move the people of God, his people, to the promised land so that they would worship the God of the promised land. And yet so often our trust, my faith, my longings and my desires are just that God would serve my needs. Surgical, tactical, precision of God. My perceived needs aren't the basis for his provision. (laughs) What I think I need isn't the basis for which God provides for me. God always provides, but we can't see it most of the time because we're looking at other things. We're looking at our cucumbers. I hope you go to the store this week and you look at cucumbers and you'll be like, that's it, right? Like there's these things, these appetites, these things that I long for so much that actually draw me away from God. And you buy a cucumber and you're like, yep, I know that the Lord is doing something in me because I want those things to be freed from my life. Our hearts don't find things or our hearts find things not to like. Um, And then we make them noble. So that's what criticism does. Well, I don't like this, and I don't think this is working, and this doesn't make sense to me, and I'm not happy about this. And then we spiritualize it. Well, because I don't think that that's a good thing, that means God doesn't think it's a good thing. And so we attach our preferences and make them God's prescriptions. And that's a dangerous game to play. The Word of, the God, the word of God sets the parameters, the His ordered world, what he communicated clearly is the basis for which we understand his perfect provision. It doesn't come from us. So here's what God does. He passes judgment, which we've been through before. God always deals seriously and significantly with sin. Chapter 14, verse 20 through 23 says this. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord... None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers 
and none of those who despise me shall see it. So now you get why a two-week journey took 40 years. The generation that was freed from captivity in Egypt and was promised the promised land and promised the God of the promised land had become so ingrained in their complaint and so unsatisfied with the perfect provision of God that the punishment for their resistance to the work of God was they wouldn't see the very thing that God was going to carry out in their life. That generation that had been promised the land flowing with milk and honey would die in the wilderness. They wouldn't see the gracious provision of God that he would keep and he would keep his promises. And so they wandered for a generation, for 40 years, as a realization that still the God of the wilderness is still the God of the promised land. But the perfect provision of God as he led them to the promised land, they lost. They still had God, but they lost the very thing that they thought they wanted most. Because they didn't want God more than their appetites. See, I think that's what happens. Is that criticism has a tendency to sort of hunt for allies. Looking for ways to bring people into our own sort of dysfunction. And blinds us to the moves of God. That's what he says in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 14. According to the number of days in which the... the uh, nope, we can't do this. Way too big. Caleb was like, no, you got this, God. 40 days, 40, so they came back. And you shall bear iniquity for 40 years. And you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken... Surely this, is, this will I do uh, to this wicked generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. God's people have epic tantrums, don't they? It's <laughs> just like really great at throwing a fit. And this happens consistently when they don't get their way. Like, and it's just like kids, right? You don't give them the popsicle they want or the ice cream they want. They throw a fit because they feel like, I need this in order to be happy. And if I don't have this, my whole life is falling apart. It's funny how much doesn't change when we are adults. It just gets a little bit more nuanced. We all have those epic tantrums and those desires for God to do something that we don't feel like he's doing. But, but let me just take you through what happens. So criticism has moved in to maybe our hearts or especially the people of God. There's this sense in which they're just so consistently dissatisfied with God's provision that they can't see anything but what they don't get. And in the process of that, does that impede? Does that cripple God from carrying through on his promises? I don't think so. As the book of Numbers unfolds, there's some unique aspects of what ends up happening. This is the plot twist. So here's what happens. Right, they're continuing to move. They begin to move through Moab, which is right on the cusp of the promised land. It's right there. And the king of Moab is like, boy, dude, that's a lot of people. And they're going to overthrow me. And so I've got I've to find a way to raise up someone to curse these people so that they get out of my land. So... They, this soothsayer, this witch doctor, if you will, Balaam, is hired by this king of Moab, Balak, to be able to, to, to curse the nation of Israel, just to continue to levy all these things of, uh, uh, on them about all of the terrible things that are going to happen to them because they're walking through Moab into the promised land. 
In the, promise, in the process of that, the unfaithfulness of Israel is consistently present. God uses a donkey. If you've read this story, you know where I'm going. It's incredible. Right? God speaks through a donkey to this witch doctor and begins to change his entire course of what he's going to be asking his gods for. And what would have ended up being a curse based on how it, what he was hired to do actually became him loving blessings over the nation of Israel by a, a foreign witch doctor through the words of a donkey. God communicates his perfect provision. And what does he communicate? What is that perfect provision? There's a bit of a foreshadow, a bit of a prelude. Here's the plot twist. Numbers chapter 24, verses 15 through 17. So he, he has all these oracles. This is the third one. And as, as this... Balaam is, is, is loving all these things, saying all these things. They actually, what, what was supposed to be curses ended up to be blessings over the nation itself. And then in the promise, process of that, here's, here's the last oracle of what, what he says over the nation. Let's start with verse 15. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High. Because the, God talked to him through the donkey, he's aware of the very words that he should be speaking and, and the power and potency of God. Who sees visions of the Almighty. I mean, the irony is incredible. The very people of God who should be listening and attending to the voice of God are now having to hear the word of God from some foreign witch doctor who sees the visions of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And here it is, verse 17. If you haven't, I mean, I would just circle this sucker in your Bible. I see him, but now I behold him. But not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall cross the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. So from a disobedient people to a donkey... To a soothsayer or a witch doctor rises an eternal perfect king. Are you kidding me? Like just the thought of the reality of God's perfect provision and even the communication of the nation of Israel. That something God has planned. That, that they don't see it and they've missed it because they're still in the if onlys. And they're not in the just wait. Just wait and see what God's going to do. You won't believe your eyes in the amazing, miraculous things that God has planned for his people. And in this very story of all of this trial exposing this insufficient or very superficial faith in a God who has provided for them in miraculous ways. And all they can think about is cucumbers. And yet, in the process of those things, it's not as though God just dismisses them out of pocket. Be like, I'm fed up with your junk. I'm going to go find me some new people. That's not what he does. Right? There's this enduring patience of God to reveal his perfect provision in the most unbelievable of ways. There is not a resource that is not available to the God of the universe to carry out his perfect plan in your life. Do you trust it? Or do you have the optics of appetite? That you just want what you want. That I just want what I want. And if I got those things, then maybe my faith would grow. You have what you need in Christ. This victorious king. 
the one that was raised up from Israel, that crushed Moab, the king of the universe who communicates his power in all of humanity, is worthy to be trusted and he cares about you. He's invited you into his presence and said your appetites, your misplaced longings for your future, your desires for relationship, your hopes for financial security, it all matters for nothing if your heart isn't given to the full and perfect promises of God who is eternal king. It is him that you need. It is that which I need. And that is all that I need. And yet, I hope at times is on cucumbers and the if onlys because the just waits feel too long and too hard. That for me is my confession. Lord, I do believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. Would you pray with me? Thank you.